This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Laura from AJ Bell and I'm joined by Dan from Shares. Hiya. So this week, rather unbelievably, we've hit the halfway point in the year and we are now in July. So we're going to look at, back at how markets and funds did over that time. Small spoiler alert, they did not do so well. Um, but we're also going to cover all of the news that's come out this week, so including stuff on cryptocurrencies, mortgage approvals, nosediving, the price of gold soaring, and we're also going to be talking about shareholder activism. So we'll start off by taking a look at some of the news in the market this week. Um, so there's actually quite a lot going on. Uh, the, the one that sort of caught my eye, but I'm not sure whether this is going to be um, a name that all of the, our listeners will know, but it's, it's, a, it's a FTSE 250 gold miner called Petro Pavlovsk, um, whose shares have, uh, after, go, after doing very well, taken, they've taken a real nosedive, they're now into their third boardroom coup since 2017. Oh, that sounds um, so, exciting! Yeah, so <laughs> it, it's they've the board has been voted out by their major shareholder UGC, um, and the Petropavlos has sort of come back and say, "We reckon you were working um, in sort of cahoots with a couple of the other shareholders, and we want to know uh, what, what's going on." So. Um, Back in the sort of hot seat is well, the deputy CEO has been promoted to the interim chief exec, and, and the founder of the company, Peter Hambro, is back as the interim chairman. And, and if you go back a few days, there's a bit of a chatter that um, Petro Pavlos is going to merge with UGC. But I wonder whether this is a bit of revenge uh, for making those talks public, or or potentially a way of sort of gain, UGC gaining control of the company without paying a premium for the business. Um, one of the stockbrokers, Pill Hunt, said record it looked like a sort of a coup aimed at securing control of, of this refractory ore processing hub that Petrofab lost got. So for, for those people who aren't um, sort of up on their mining terminology, essentially... Which is me, uh, so explain. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it's, in Russia, they've got really difficult, complicated to treat rock that contains the gold. Um, and so they've Petropavlos has built this um, this way of treating it, uh, and essentially it opens up um, the opportunity to look at lots and lots of different gold prospects in the country, and um, and so and so I think the the industry is looking at them, saying, okay, you you're the only one that's got some spare capacity, so therefore it's it's a bit of a strategic asset. Um, so you can see why people might be interested in um, you know what what Petropavlos got to offer. So. Uh, yeah, so I mean, it's a bit of a drama, and then and so the following day after this coup, the CEO who's kicked out is back again one day later as the chief operating officer. So it it, it is utter um, you know, carnage, really. And it, you know, if you're looking for a, a case study of um, absolutely awful corporate governance, um, and sort of if there was ever a reason that you were, you were sort of concerned, should I invest in in anything linked with Russia? <laughs> this is your case study to look at so <laughs> and um, so what's happened to the share price in all of that yeah well the shares took it you know, yesterday when it was all announced it, it, they t- they fell by nearly 20 percent. so um it, it's a bit, bit ironic because petrofalosk is you know one of the best performing shares in in recent months 
it's all linked. They've sort of been riding the the, the hike in the gold price as well. I mean, I thought they they seem to sort themselves out. They they they've been through this before. They have all this sort of power struggle. Then they have all those debt struggles, and then they manage to get back on their feet. They're, they're doing it all again. It's you know, if you're invested in this company, it must be extremely frustrating. Um, you know, you just want them to be digging the stuff out of the ground and uh, and making these shiny metal bars, but it just doesn't seem to be as straightforward as that. Sounds a bit like schoolyard infighting to me. <laughs> it doesn't sound like the way a company should be run. No, um, absolutely. But what else has been happening out there? Well, so we had um, the house builder Red Row. Its shares took a bit of a hit. Um, so it's it, it sort of it's been guiding for lower profit this year. So that you know that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Um, but what's happened is is guiding for lower revenue than it was already forecast, and and so therefore profits were going to be even lower than the market had been expecting. But what caught my eye was it's pleading the government for the current help to buy scheme to stay the same because from next year it's going to be switched so it's only first time buyers will be able to um, to benefit but redrow is talking about you know, really it should it should be a mass market um, opportunity for for people to, to you know to to participate in the property market so um, you know the house builders have been so absolutely addicted to the help to buy scheme for several years yeah, it's been such a game changer in the housing market, hasn't it? And yeah. and for um, house builder returns. So elsewhere, we've got Tesco and Sainsbury's have updated the market. You know, again, there's there's some no surprises there on the, on the grocery sales of Sword, but actually for what did surprise for Sainsbury's, it owns Argos, and um, Argos's sales have been really really strong in in the last few months. I think this is. Uh, this is, you know, kind of shows that um, people aren't automatically going to Amazon to buy stuff. They do use other brands as well. So if you look back in recent weeks, you've had AO and Dixon's Carphone. They've both been talking about strong electrical sales. Of course, Argos is in this market as well. So, yeah, I think that's Sainsbury's needed that. They needed a boost. So, um, But quite interesting that they are guiding for um, for this sort of sales uh, frenzy to sort of die down a bit in the coming months but really and i think, I think when we looked at like inflation data a few weeks ago when we looked at what everyone was buying a lot of it is some of the stuff that you would go to argos for so it's things like toys and games um when we had the good weather paddling pools it's all of that kind of stuff outside of the electronics that lots of people would think of going to argos for so i can kind of see that makes sense doesn't it yeah and so elsewhere, we've got the FTSE 100 Investment Trust Scottish Mortgage. Um, its shareholders have approved um, for for the trust to increase its exposure to companies that are not listed on the stock market from a maximum of 25% portfolio to, to now up to 30%. So now this is interesting because when we had Neil Woodford um, going through all of his problems with his, uh, a couple of his funds... One of the reasons was because he was delving more into this sort of the unquoted part of the market, which is called. So these are these are companies that don't have a stock market listing. Um, now he was he was going into lots of biotech stuff where arguably he didn't really have a background in that area. But um, Scottish Mortgage is run by the asset manager Bailey Gifford, who has a brilliant track record in backing sort of future growth companies. So it likes to back companies where he thinks that they they have the potential to be the market leader in in the future. 
Um, just to give you some examples, it, it backed Spotify and um, Alibaba uh, in the very early days. And of course, they're now on the stock market and doing very well. But you know, Scottish Mortgage Stroke, Bailey Gifford could argue that you know, they, they were there in the early days. They recognised this potential. So they would have enjoyed much bigger gains than, than people who just bought when they're on the market. So I, I, was, I was quite interested because you know, obviously shareholders have approved this. So it's, it's definitely going ahead. But um, you know, the reason why they want to do it is because they're a bit worried that some of the big holdings like Tesla and Amazon in the portfolio, they're, just, they're now held by lots of different um, standard global investment uh, funds. And, and they really want to be a bit different from everyone else. So they're sort of um, looking for other opportunities that some, some funds won't have. So, and Scottish mortgage logic has has been for a while that um, companies aren't listing or coming to the stock market um, as quickly as they had done previously. So, for them to really access the kind of big growth stories, they've got to invest in these private or unlisted companies. But it's interesting they've increased the unlisted exposure again because they did it a couple of years ago. They increased it. Um, to a maximum limit of 25%. Um, so it's interesting that they've now eats that up again. And obviously that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to immediately have 30% of the portfolio in unlisted. I guess it just gives them a bit more flexibility if they see good opportunities out there, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think because this is a FTSE 100 um, constituent and Scottish Mortgage is a very popular investment product with lots of people across the country, it, it's well worth just having a look to see what they're doing um, because I imagine there probably will be shareholders who who didn't vote and may not have been aware that, of what was going on. So um, I, th- I think there are, there are some names in its portfolio which could potentially join the market fairly soon, or certainly when um, the sort of coronavirus is hopefully dying down a bit. So it owns stakes in Airbnb, um, Ant Financial, and also ByteDance, which owns the social media platform TikTok. So Laura, I know that you love to record tiktok videos of you dancing and stuff far too old for tiktok i don't understand (laughs) it i don't understand why people are watching people dance it just makes me feel ancient when i see it really are you not tempted to to get put your put your silver wig on and uh, i don't know do your your bestseller black impersonation or something i think you've just highlighted that you are far too old for tiktok (laughs) (laughs) and so the the other the other sort of really sort of Quite important news in the market in the last week is, is gold prices. So the futures prices passed um, $1,800 for the first time since 2011. So what normally happens is when people are worried about stock markets they, they, or, or even they're worried about um, inflation, they'll buy gold um, as a sort of a store of value. But when stocks go up, a lot of people tend not to sort of uh, be so interested in it. They're, they're more interested in, in sort of buying equities for further further capital gains. So you don't really often, but what we're seeing now is that the equities are going up and gold's going up. So, you know, that would suggest that there's definitely a segment of the market still worried about what's going on. And um, maybe they're just positioning themselves for if the markets pull back again, um, you know, they're going to have some potential source of protection in their in their portfolios. I don't it's know. Do you get, do you get excited about gold, Laura? I I do, not dramatically, to be honest. But um, I do think it is always interesting looking at what's happening with the gold price as a kind of 
proxy for how much risk investors are willing to take at the moment or how nervous they are about markets. And even though, I mean, we're going to talk a bit about the year so far, but even though markets have rebounded a bit, I think people are still very wary about potential second wave, potential another drop in markets, and there might be kind of more bad news to come. So I guess it makes sense that that they're still piling into gold. Yeah. So for for any listeners who like to invest in small cap mining stocks um, in case you weren't sort of following this space during the last commodities boom uh, sort of eight eight years ago what happened the last time gold went crazy was you you start to have lots of companies having um, projects with very marginal uh, scope to make a profit high gold prices you'll see loads of projects sort of being dusted off and and you know, companies talking about them, getting all excited, saying you know, we've got big potential, um, untapped gold resource, blah, 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 blah. Um, but as soon as the gold price pulls back, these projects are just not going to make any money at all. And so I would be very wary uh, if you start to see a wave of new project chatter amongst listed mining companies or even see mining companies join the stock market um, with, with these projects because it, it's just inevitable it is going to happen but um you know who knows what the gold price is going to do and it's been hovering about 1600 um dollars for for quite a while and you know if you if you take that as perhaps being sort of the comfortable level which the market is pricing it then 1800 is is perhaps um a short-term short-term experience i don't know but uh, just just be careful is, is a sort of the, the warning for that one do you know everything about mining? Um, not everything. Would it be but your used... specialist subject? When I when I when I first um, joined my current role, I was on day one. They said, "Oh, you know, we'll, we'll get you to write about these different sectors." Well, one of them was mining, and I thought, "Oh my, I don't really know that much about it." So I had to I had to go headfirst into it and interview as many companies on the stock market about it as possible. Um, and I sort of covered it for, for a number of years. And it, and whilst a lot of people look at this industry and think it's just full of, um, you know, people, it's full of hot air and liars. You know, uh, it, what's a mining company? It's, a, it's, it's like a hole in the ground and stuff. <laughs> it, there's a lot more to it. And it's actually a bit more interesting than you think. But um, you, you've got to be really sceptical of everything, though, because there's so many people talking it up to be much better than things are. But yeah, but there's time for you yet, Laura, to be a mining expert. I'm excited. I'm excited to learn more. <laughs> <laughs> so we're that's kind of all the stuff that's happened this week. But we are now halfway through the year. We're in July. I can't quite believe that we've got here. But it's fair to say that investors have seen a pretty wild ride this year, particularly in comparison to um, recent years. So... Dan, should we do a little rundown of where we're at so far in the year with some of the major markets? So let's start with the UK as it's closest to home. Okay, so year to date, uh, the FTSE 100 is down 17%. Um, now, that's not very good, really, is it? So considering it's not great that we news. talk. No, because if people are talking about a bounce back in the last three or four months, still be seeing 17% down year to date is not great. Now that's that's clearly to do with the fact that the, the market is heavily weighted towards the oil and gas 
and the banking sectors. And both those areas have just had really bad news. Oil prices really plummeted. Um, and on the banking side, well, you know, at the start of the year, we were all talking about potential interest rate hikes, which is so the higher the interest rates, the more profits opportunity for banks. But now interest rates are just next to nothing. Um, and also all these banks are very worried about taking on um, potential bad debts for the future so that they're being far stricter with their lending. And so this opportunity to make money is sort of shrinking. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's not great, is it really? 17% down. But, um, I think it's kind of mad when you look at, so you take the FTSE 100, for example, and you look at where it's been this year. So in January, it hit a high of... Um, 7,700-ish. Um, but then by March, so only a couple of months later, it hit a low of below 5,000. And I think that just highlights the kind of, in such a short space of time, the journey that investors have been on. Yeah, so it's, it's bounced back 14% in the second quarter, which sounds good. But if you compare it to US markets, which have done more than double that, so... Um, yeah, I think, you know, the US, US is the one to look at. So um, NASDAQ 100 is up 17% year to date. Most of the Asian stocks are sort of nursing very mild losses, apart from Hong Kong, which is down 12%. Um, but really, it, it's about, you know, the bounce back has been very strong in lots of it. So in Japan, Nikkei is up 23% in the second quarter. Um, so the S&P 500 is up 26% in the US. So it, I think... For those people who sat tight and didn't do anything when the market sold off, as we've talked about on previous podcasts, hopefully some of those losses will have been narrowed now. But anyone who had a bit of spare money and, and was brave enough to buy at the height of the market turmoil should have made some fairly decent profits, actually. Assuming that they got it right on the right day, bought in at the right time, all of that, yeah. which was obviously so hard to tell when you have markets moving so much up and down each day <laughs> i know i know i mean it just, it, i, I we talked to lots of fund managers for the podcast and in my job and um and they all seem to be saying oh yeah yeah you know i had total conviction to buy everything <laughs> exactly exactly on the 23rd of march which is the, with the bottom but you know you do you sort of you think okay you can't, surely can't have all got it right um it's just there'll impossible. be a lot of people that bought too early after the initial market falls and thought okay that's probably the worst of them over with and then bought and, and experience falls but even then if you'd bought part way down that drop you you should have recovered um a lot of your losses by now yeah yeah i think so, so I, I mean i had a look at some of the some of the stocks and you know some of the, the i remember looking in may to thinking what was what was doing really well and there was one called motif bio a little tiny biotech stock so if you bought the March low and then held it till, I don't know, some point in, in May, it was up more than 3,000%. Wow. Um, but then it halved in value and then oh. it doubled in value again and then it fell by two thirds. So you know, this is like absolute um, perfect illustration of very small companies that are just moving all over the place. Um, you know, if you timed it wrong on each of those wild movements up and down, it could have been this could have been the one of the worst years ever for you. So, <laughs> just in terms of investment returns, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, like, well, we talked about Petra Pavlovsk earlier. That's up nearly hundred percent this year. 
um, even with its boardroom coup. AO, the obviously the fridges and uh, TV sellers up sixty percent. Uh, yeah, it's it's and but actually, you know, not everything goes up. So in in the first half, Aston Martin is down seventy percent, which is oh, wow, which is a I'm lot sure. for a big company like a established big company like that, isn't it? Yeah. Petra Diamonds down 79% in the first half of the year. This used to be a FTSE 250 company. Now it's worth barely anything and it's up for sale. Um, I, I, you know, the, and what they're, they're just simply struggling to repay their debts. The diamond market's sort of frozen because, uh, partly because they've got lots of problems with getting rough stones to cutters and polishers. Um, you know, it's not sort of rich people aren't really sort of traveling around the world and um, popping into their local favorite diamond shop on the, not on the high street <laughs> and doing stuff. Yes. I mean, it's, it's fortunate, you know, cause you've got fairly decent projects, assets that, you know, that they own, they're just, just totally drowning in debt, which is real. It's a real shame. You know, that was a, that was a very, very good, um, well-run business for, for lots of years. And when we look at funds, um, it kind of tells that picture of, of um, US-focused uh, funds doing particularly well. So Bailey Gifford American is a fund, um, and that returned 54% in the year so far. But also the gold story that you were talking about before, so there's a fund called Rougher Gold, um, which kind of does what it says on the tin, um, and that has returned 56% this year um, off the back of, of the gold price soaring. Um so and and we've seen obviously also a lot of biotech and technology stocks do particularly well. So funds focused on those have done well. And then on the flip side, um, a lot of the the worst performers have been UK equity focused funds, but particularly ones that are value focused. Uh, so where they're investing in those kind of hidden gems and those stocks that are primed to rebound, a lot of those stocks have been hit particularly hard. The moment so one of the worst performers was um aberdeen standard life investments which um has a uk recovery equity fund uh, which is value focused and that lost investors almost 43 percent in the past six months oh that's not good at all yeah. so values um, yeah value is a difficult one isn't it it's all continuously out of favor that comes back in the sun but only for a very brief moment yeah, exactly. And then the value managers get very excited that they're that they're back in the limelight and then and then a, a market crash like this comes along and hurts them again. Yeah. Um but it's interesting. I looked at the figures in terms of how the average UK fund manager has performed in comparison to the market. Um, because you'd expect the the theory would go that in these really volatile times, um, active fund managers who were stock picking rather than just tracking the market. Um, will be able to prove their worth and, and outperform the market by avoiding some of those uh, companies that had epic falls and perhaps investing, like we just said, at exactly the right time and, and profiting from the rebound. But on uh, while obviously there's lots of exceptions to this, on average they haven't actually managed to do that. So on average UK equity fund managers um, delivered the same return as the FTSE All Share in the past six months, which is a loss of 18%. Um, and about half of the funds have delivered a worse return than the index. So I think that's quite interesting. I mean, 
the age-old debate about whether you should invest in active and passive, so whether you pay a fund manager to pick stocks for you or you just buy the entire index, it's always going to rage on and people will always have arguments on both sides. But it's interesting that during this time of particular market turmoil, on average, um, those fund managers hasn't, haven't necessarily proven their worth yet. I'm sure they would all defend themselves as to why they haven't done but Yeah, so obviously the ones we've spoken to who all insist that they bought everything at the bottom um, they must <laughs> they're be the exception that. to the rule <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um but i think it'd be interesting to see how how those figures kind of evolve as the year goes on because whilst um some might not have been prepared for the market falls and might have had big positions in things like the oil companies that um that were really hit hard or, or banks for example um you would hope that they would be able to spot the bargains and buy at the right time or at least near the right time, um, like we said. And so they might be able to benefit better in a rebound. Um, but it'd be interesting to see whether if markets carry on rising, um, whether that is proven to be true. And so there's quite a few other bits of news going on this week. So, Laura, what, what sort of caught your eye? Yeah, it feels like there's been quite a few like little tidbits of data or interesting things that have come out. So... Um, the first one, I know we talked about housing a lot last week, but there were some interesting um, new figures out from the Bank of England, um, and they do not paint such a rosy picture for the housing market. So we obviously talked about different predictions from in-state agents last week in terms of the demand and appetite, and also various wild predictions for what house prices are going to do. But the Bank of England collects figures on the number of people that have been approved for a new mortgage. So that's actually quite good data to be able to see not only who is looking to move and applying for a mortgage to move, but who actually gets approved for a mortgage as well. The figures show that in May, the number of approvals for new mortgages dropped almost 90% below the figures for February. Um, And to put that into context in terms of previous kind of crisis or or tricky market times, um, the number of approvals now are about a third of what they were at their worst point in the financial crisis. So what I think that really highlights is that maybe the housing market doesn't quite have this fruitful pipeline that lots of estate agents have been talking about. Um, and I think there's probably two, a couple of reasons for that. So some lenders have tightened up their criteria in terms of who they'll lend to or their minimum deposit requirements, some of the stuff that we that we did speak about last week, um, because they're a bit worried about where house prices are going to go. But I think also at the same time, we've got a lot of people who are now maybe in a slightly more uncertain or precarious financial position. Um, maybe they've been furloughed, maybe they're worried about losing their job in the future. Um, and so those people might not feel that now is the right time to take undertake the big financial move of, of moving house or upsizing or taking on a bigger mortgage or, or even just the costs involved in moving of, of stamp duty and, and moving costs. Um, so I think it highlights that there's a little bit of nervousness around there. So maybe we shouldn't believe everything estate agents tell us. And then on a completely different topic, we had some interesting stuff out about cryptocurrencies this week. Remember them? They were all the rage, weren't they? Have they all been withdrawn and we realised it was just a big dream? They just they still exist. <laughs> they do still exist. And what surprised me slightly is that people are still buying them and in large numbers. Um, so we obviously had the whole boom around a couple of years ago around when Bitcoin 
soared in price and everyone was talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies down the pub and your cab driver was talking to you about it and everyone went a bit mad for them. I kind of assumed since then that people weren't really investing in them so heavily. Um, but they are. And so these new figures out from the FCA, the regulator, show that more than one in 20 people in the UK have bought a cryptocurrency at some point, which is quite a lot of people when you think about the entire population. It is, isn't it? That's, that's you know, it's incredibly high. I just, I just can't believe it. Um, well, you better believe I, it. I'm not lying to you. <laughs> I mean, I, I, must, I must confess, it's because I spend all day for my, for my job looking at investment-related stuff on the internet, my targeted advertisements you see online, loads of them are linked with sort of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin trading. So whether you've had lots of trading companies have been ploughing money into advertising and obviously reaping the benefits of that. I don't know whether that's causing it or... It just Is it just pure, it's pure gambling? It must be that people are um, just want to bet on something. Maybe there's no sports at the moment for them to, to bet on. So they're betting on uh, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum and all those other sort of made-up names <laughs> that live in the, in the cryptocurrency world. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, so the, the regulator did loads of research into asking people kind of why they bought it and all of their different views about it. And, and for a large proportion of people, they seem to be, um, I was going to say investing, but I'm really loath to use that word with cryptocurrencies because I don't think it is an investment. But um, they seem to be putting small amounts of money into these cryptocurrencies. And they are doing it exactly like you said, as a kind of gamble um, if it does well, then I'll be great and I'll be a millionaire like all those people that talked about when Bitcoin's price soared. But if it doesn't, then I've only lost a couple of hundred quid. Um, so there is a big group that are just doing that. But there are also some more vulnerable people, I would say, who have been lured in by advertising, particularly on social media and online advertising about um, all of the joys of cryptocurrency and why you should part with your money. Um, and it's also been shown that there's quite a, a, a chunk of people that don't actually understand cryptocurrency. So they're putting their money into these things, but they don't really understand how they work or why, in theory, they should make them money. And what was really worrying, I thought, about this is that the research showed that one in eight people are borrowing money in order to buy cryptocurrency, which well, that's, that's is just good, terrible. No, yeah. because... Not only are you then reliant on it going up in value because it's not your own money that you can afford to lose, but you're also presumably, whilst you're you're buying that cryptocurrency and waiting for it to go up, you're also paying interest on that money. So it has highlighted some more kind of vulnerable areas of the market, I would say. So I imagine that's going to be leading to the FCA clamping down on uh, cryptocurrency advertising potentially in the future or certainly the messages that are being... Uh, or the, there and uh, perhaps the risk warnings certainly sounds you know if they're, if they're flagging things like that it's got to lead to, to only one road i would have thought yeah and the government had already talked about this um about cracking down on on advertising and bringing in more strict rules around cryptocurrency advertising but it's one of those things that seems to have got a bit lost in the coronavirus crisis um cryptocurrency is also from a kind of regulatory point of view 
fall into a bit of a weird gap. Um, so they're not a lot of them aren't directly regulated by the FCA, and so they fall into this slight no man's land, um, which means that it's harder for for one organisation to kind of bring in new rules and and regulate them and and crack down on the market. But it definitely seems like that's the way we're headed. Just probably not anytime soon. There's a Bitcoin ATM in Elephant and Castle shopping centre near where we work. I've never seen anyone ever go and use it. The the idea of queuing up to machine and getting some Bitcoin does seem a bit odd, doesn't it? How does that even work? Bitcoin doesn't have a a paper currency. Maybe I don't you know. take a maybe you have to take a, a USB stick or something. I don't, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're Don't highlighting know. our lack of knowledge of cryptocurrencies here, aren't we? We would fall into that group that would bought it and not understood fully what they were getting themselves into. <laughs> but also, I defy anyone to fully explain, any kind of person on the street that doesn't work in the industry, to fully explain to me how blockchain technology works and why that's going to make them lots of money. Because I think people just bandy around these terms, but they don't really understand it. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm sure that we're going to have lots of irate <laughs> listeners now <laughs> writing in telling me I'm wrong. <laughs> um, and the other small thing that um, came out today actually is new fraud measures that should help people. So this was another thing that was meant to be introduced in March and then it got delayed because of COVID-19. Um, but it's new. It's got a very sexy name. It's called Confirmation of Payee. Um but it basically means that, how basic does this sound as a check, but it doesn't actually happen at the moment until today, that when you set up a new payee for an account, the bank doesn't actually check that the account details you put in match the name that you've put in. Oh so you could transfer money to me. Until today, you could have transferred money to me, but put a completely different name, um, and it would have still transferred that money to my account because it wouldn't check that the two match up. Mm. So that's obviously opened up a big loophole for scammers and fraudsters um, in bank transfer fraud. Um, But from today, the big six banks um, have to carry out this extra check, which is it's hoped will crack down on some instances of fraud. Yeah, that's quite interesting. So it sounds a bit technical, but it also sounds like something that should probably have been introduced about 10 years ago. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So some institutional investors often take a stake in a company because they believe it isn't being run properly or there might be some hidden value amongst its assets. And they use their position as a shareholder to put pressure on the company to make changes, um, which is something called shareholder activism. So I spoke to Joe Bauenfreund from Asset Value Investors about how he uses this approach as part of his investing. So we talked about his methods and why Sony is an ongoing target for activists. Hi, Joe. Thanks ever so much for joining us. So just in terms of being an activist investor, how much do you really need to own of a company before they'll take you seriously in terms of your suggestions for change? Well, um, like all good questions, uh, there isn't always a straightforward answer. Um, Obviously, it helps if you're a large shareholder or or, or the largest shareholder. But um, in Japan, for example, if you own 1% of a company, it entitles you to be able to submit shareholder proposals at AGMs. 
And that does get the attention of, of management because it's not it's not that common for shareholder proposals to be submitted. If we're talking about us investing in uh, closed end funds, for example, then um, being the largest shareholder, having a double digit stake over 10% gets you a seat at the table and gets gets the board of directors listening to you. Yeah, what, what's the sort of the best approach to, to try and achieve results? I sort of presume that if, it, if it's sensitive subjects that you need to be talking to them behind closed doors or do you think actually going public and putting pressure on a business under the spotlight of the media is actually a good way to, to get results? Well, I believe um, that it's much better to try and do things behind closed doors and away from public scrutiny. I think you get uh, better results if you engage in a constructive, positive dialogue rather than try and bully people and try and be aggressive. Obviously, there will be some situations where the quiet, constructive, private approach hasn't delivered results, and then you may well be forced to go public. But it's never, um, it's never my preference uh, to go public at the outset. Yeah. What, what sort of stuff are you, do, do you sort of tend to push for change? Is there sort of any commonalities? Um, is it all sort of down to sort of poor management decisions or, or companies being too complex? Or is it sort of a, a very broad range of things that you try and um, talk to them about? Well, again, it, it differs depending upon which type of company um, we're talking about. But one area of commonality is our belief that the specific target company is undervalued by the stock market. And we're looking for a course of action that could be taken by management to help unlock that value. So in the case of a closed-end fund, for example, an investment trust, it could be trading on a wide discount. There could be, we could be looking to encourage management to buy back shares, to add value and to um, send a signal that they believe the shares to be cheap. We could be looking for management to provide greater transparency on the valuation of those assets if, they, if they're unlisted, for example. And in the case of uh, Japanese companies, um, we could be focusing on areas of corporate governance that are lacking. So lack of independent directors, too much cash sitting idly on the balance sheet. So it, it is a range of different areas, but the commonality really is that it's designed to correct a mispricing or an undervaluation in, in the market. Yeah, so it's quite interesting. We, 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 I know that obviously you run a one of your your products is a Japanese focused fund, but you know I, I would have thought Japan's got this sort of culture of respect. So I was quite I wasn't sure that shareholder activism would work in a country, you know, somewhere where they they wouldn't welcome an outsider barging in and telling them what to do. Yeah, you're you're absolutely think- right. There <laughs> is this culture of respect, and there is a lack of trust when it comes to foreign investors in in Japan. But um, things have changed over the last few years. Um, One of the drivers of that change has been the implementation of a corporate governance code and a stewardship code, which explicitly tasks companies with focusing on shareholder returns and engaging with shareholders and listening to what they have to say. So that is one departure that has occurred in the last five years and stands out as being different from, say, 
uh, 10 years ago in, in, in Japan. And but taking that alongside the culture of, of respect in Japan, most of the activists such as ourselves engaged in Japan are very sympathetic towards that culture. And so we're doing things in a positive, constructive way. We're not trying to be aggressive and trying to embarrass companies. We're trying to build this mutual respect, trying to get them to see us as long-term supportive shareholders who have some good ideas that, that would be to everybody's benefit. And it takes time to build up that relationship. And therefore, when it comes to activism in Japan, you have to you have to play the long game. Yeah, so what's, I noticed that you've been campaigning for change at um, a Japanese business called Taikoku. It seems like this is a battle you can't win because so many, invest so many of its investors are linked through business relationships. So obviously you say that you, it's, it, you need to take a long-term game, but um, you know, how patient can you really be if you're, you're trying to obviously generate positive returns for shareholders? Uh, you, you know, you're right. Uh, there is this culture of... Um, shareholders in Japan being linked through a commercial business relationship. And that creates a big supportive base amongst shareholders who will always support management and try and resist pressure from shareholders like ourselves. But as a result of the corporate governance codes and, and, and stewardship code, things are changing, attitudes are changing. And if the company, if, if the if the company and, and the country at large is going to start focusing on shareholder returns, then they have to deal with these cross-shareholdings, they're called, these, these commercial relationships, because they're not in the interest of all shareholders. They're only in the interest of a select minority. So there is pressure building on, on those cross-shareholding arrangements to be reduced or to be eliminated. And so you're absolutely right when you say that it, it does seem to be an uphill struggle to get uh, to get support for for our proposals, but the environment is changing, and um, it, it is changing slowly but surely. And over time, I, I fully expect that those cross-shielding arrangements will disappear, and at that point, uh, management will be free to act in the interests of all shareholders. So we have to be persistent and we have to try and make the argument and try and win the support of as many shareholders as possible. And in Japan, it's important to get support from not only foreign shareholders, but also from uh, the domestic institutional shareholder base, whose voice is, is very powerful. And that is certainly something that is occurring and is picking up pace, has picked up pace over the last couple of years. Yeah. So I, I, I noticed that you like to invest in sort of so-called parent-child companies where, where it seems likely that the parent company will sell uh, a subsidiary or, or acquire in full. Um, is, this, is this quite an easier one to be in? It's just a waiting game for the parent to so I just sort of embrace or, or kick out the child um, rather than sort of worrying about how shareholders are treated. But again, um, this is a quirk of the Japanese market. There are um, many situations where you have a large company, a parent, 
um, owning 50.1% stake in a listed subsidiary. And that creates this parent-child structure. And it's very beneficial to the parent company because they get to consolidate all the profits and they get to use all the cash that sits on the child subsidiary's balance sheet. But it's not in the interest of us uh, minority shareholders because it prevents uh, it, it prevents the company from being run in the interest of, of all shareholders and it acts as a kind of a poison pill preventing other companies from from taking over if, if they believe the company to be undervalued. So there has been, again, as a result of the corporate governance code, there has been mounting pressure on these large parent companies to try and boost their own share prices and to boost their own shareholder returns by becoming more efficient structures. And one of those methods of becoming more efficient is to try and tidy up these child subsidiary situations. So where there is a, a synergy between the parent's business and the child's business, what we've typically seen is the parent acquire that child and own 100%. And where there isn't a synergy or business reason for them to be associated with each other, we've seen them sell uh, sell to third parties. Yeah, so, so I noticed that you did have, you had a bit of success recently with Toshiba Plant and Newflare both being acquired by Toshiba. You had stakes in them, didn't you? So, I mean, did you have any sort of engagement with the sort of the parent company Toshiba about um, that the, those transactions should happen. Interesting thing about the Toshiba situation is, as you say, we had stakes in the child subsidiary uh, companies. Uh, we did write to uh, the parent Toshiba. We weren't shareholders uh, in, in the parent, but the interesting thing there was there was a large contingent of shareholders within the parent company who wanted the same. Thing as us, and that is for Toshiba to tidy up their subsidiary portfolio and try and maximise uh, the benefit to the, the, the shareholders of the parent Toshiba Corporation. So we, we were fortunate that in that situation, there were shareholders in the parent company who were really pushing, pushing for that change that would be beneficial to them and to us as shareholders in the child. Okay. What? So, just on on an, on a sort of another company which you've got an investment in, which would be Sony, which is in your global fund. So, um, I mean, this is this business has got such a strong brand, you know, fantastic reputation for its products. But I get the impression that shares have sort of been long trading below what a lot of people think is its true value. So, what, can you sort of explain what, what is it that you like about Sony, and perhaps what others don't like about it? Well, Sony reflects um, a, a typical problem for conglomerates, really. So conglomerates tend to own a series of different businesses. And when you put them all together, sometimes they're not all, all, always related to each other. And by putting them together, you create complexity. Um, you create lack of interest because investors want to buy, let's just say, a pure play business focused on on music and entertainment, but they don't necessarily want one created focused on image sensors. So you create this, this problem where the market doesn't fully reflect the true value of all the businesses together, the sum of the parts valuation, and it, hence it trades at a discount. But the thing we like most about Sony is that when you look at the various components 
that make up Sony Corporation. The various businesses are music, entertainment, games, the Im image sensor business. They're all fantastic businesses. They're all growing quite quite strongly. They're all world leaders. And whilst whilst they do trade at a discount when you put them all together, the actual earnings profile of the business of the business as a whole is is very good. It trades at a very low valuation multiple. And there is pressure building on management to try and address that, that undervaluation. So we see it as um, fairly unique amongst conglomerates, because typically when you have a conglomerate, you find that there are some good businesses and some bad businesses. Whereas in Sony, we, we like and we, we're, we're fans of, of pretty much their entire portfolio. To what do you think will happen? Do you think that the company will be broken up or they just find a way to run it more efficiently? Look, it seems that management are resisting pressure to break up uh, the company. They see that each of the components are, as I say, world leaders and they want to continue owning them. Uh, so they will have to do that. And they are uh, trying to focus on on maximizing the, the share price, the, the, the value and trying to eliminate the, the discount at which it trades to, to some of the parts. But for now, it doesn't appear as if management are keen to break up the company. So what in terms of your, your role as an investor in Sony, what are you are you in it because you think that um, more value will be generated or are, are you in it because you see an opportunity for your for yourself and your team to to act as activist investors and, and sort of be amongst perhaps many other people putting pressure on the company? Yeah, well, Sony is a very large company and we are a relatively small investor. And so we are not engaged in any activist campaign when it comes to Sony currently. But there are um, other activists in there, notably Third Point, who have made a, a an argument that we support wholeheartedly. And um, but notwithstanding the, the activist angle, it, the, the thing we really like about, about Sony is, as, as I said earlier, that the quality of the business, the growth potential of the various elements in the business, and the fact that it trades remarkably cheaply, and that over time we can benefit from the growth in profit, but also uh, a correction in that mispricing that may take a while, may, may take a while, but the key is that we're owning businesses that we are very comfortable owning for the long term. Could you, I mean, could you give me an example of um, a business where you have engaged with the management and as a result of your conversations that, that there has been positive change? You know, so, uh, essentially a success story as an activist investor. Yeah, well, um, as I said earlier, we focus our activist activities um, in, in two broad areas currently. That is Japan, which we've spoken about, and also um, amongst closed-end funds. Uh, we recently had a success in one of our closed-end fund investments called Eurocastle, um, which uh, was a Euronext-listed listed fund. We owned a large stake, uh, almost over 20%, and there were two other investors who owned similar-sized stakes. This was a fund that traded um, at a very wide discount. 
It had assets focused on uh, Italian non-performing loans and a listed business in Italy called DoValue that was a service provider um, to the non-performing loans uh, business. And uh, we uh, essentially told the board of directors of that company that we didn't think uh, the fund should continue to exist, that they should sell the assets and return the money to uh, to shareholders. And with it trading at a very wide discount to its realistic value, um, that process of returning money to shareholders unlocked uh, unlocked that discount and led to a successful outcome for us. Okay, great. I mean, if you had to sort of sum it up, is there sort of one secret to success with activists investing in general? Oh, I'll need more than one. You have to be uh, patient. You have to recognise that your desired outcome may take longer to achieve than you anticipate and hope for. And to that end, I think the most important thing when you when you make investment decisions is to try and buy businesses that you think are high quality that are going to appreciate in value so that even if it takes longer to unlock some of that value that you see as an activist, at least your investment is growing in value in that time that it takes um, for the activism to take effect. The worst thing that can happen is that you own a business that is falling in value and therefore the longer it takes for the activism to succeed, uh, the bigger the pressure, the downward pressure on the value of your investment. And that's not a comfortable situation to be in. Okay. Well, Joe, thank you ever so much. Brilliant to talk to you. Thanks a lot for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks a lot for listening this week. So remember that you can listen to us on Spotify, on the iPhone podcast app, or on Podbean. And all you need to do is search for Money and Markets. And we will see you next week. See you later. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.